Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 323, recorded October 19th, 2011. TCP Attacks. Security Now is brought to you by Ford, featuring Wi-Fi connectivity with available sync and My Ford Touch. Now your car can be a Wi-Fi hotspot. Check it out in the new 2012 Ford Focus and at Ford.com slash technology. And by GoToAssist Express. GoToAssist Express by Citrix puts IT professionals in position to do what they do best. Access, diagnose, and resolve. Try it free for 30 days at GoToAssist.com slash security now. And by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. All streamed directly to you, saving you time, money, and hassle. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security needs online, your privacy protection, and throws in a little sci-fi to boot. Mr. Steve Gibson is here. He's our... Man About Town, our security guru at GRC.com, creative spinwright, and many useful utilities. And uh, we're so glad to have you here, Steve. We're going to continue on with our conversation on how the Internet works today. Right. We know enough now about the low-level plumbing and the, 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 the way TCP initiates connections to, to share a really fun topic, which I think is going to really be interesting to our listeners, which is how TCP is attacked. Mm. How, you know, you know, everyone is familiar with the term denial of service attack. There are, it turns out, some particular vulnerabilities that TCP has always had, which are not defects in it, but just as always, ways that attackers can use anything complex in order to leverage things in, to their advantage that the designers just didn't think about. So this is attacking TCP today. Um, of course, we've got some, a bunch of interesting news of the week, which we'll cover, and, uh, uh, and a real short little Spinrite blurb, a little surprising uh, use of Spinrite. And I'm here to report that I am really loving on Basilisk Station. Oh, yay! <laughs> Not quite finished. I'm reading it on the Kindle. Okay. Um, but uh, what's interesting to me, and one of the things I know, I was a huge fan of, uh, well, the, the Horatio Hornblower tales and later the uh, Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey Maturin series, which is a 21-volume um, seafaring novel that follows the exploits of Captain Jack Aubrey, Lucky Jack, they call him, mm-hmm. and his uh, bosom buddy, the, uh, the ship's doctor, Maturin, Stephen Maturin. And it's uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, their British uh, man of war. And it starts very similarly, and I'm really wondering if the author of these Honor Harrington novels 
If 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 I had said to myself, "Gee, I love these Patrick O'Brien novels. I wonder if I could set them in the future," because it's it's exactly it, not plot wise. Well, some of the similar plot. I mean, just as Honor's getting her first command, the Aubrey Maturin books begin with Jack getting his first command. Ah. Um, but also a lot of the, all the naval tactics are very similar. You know, it's like they have to broadside these ships and so forth, and um, and they even even to the naval hierarchy. He is identical to the uh, British naval hierarchy. Oh, that's a good point. I had I hadn't thought about that. But for example, the the cannons are are aimed out of the side. They broadside each other because they're protected by the pattern from their impellers. Their their uh, high speed impellers protect them. Yes. He, it's 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 clearly crafted to have to to be a you know direct analog to British uh, naval warfare. So I thought yeah, that was, I and it, even, even down that. to the, the, they have the captains of the green and the blue, or admirals of the green and blue. They have two different, and they have the the rank, the list. All of this is very much out of the. You should read some mm. of the Aubrey Matron books. I'd be very curious what you think. I, there's there's no lasers in it though. I'm sorry. Well, we did have uh, last week uh, with Tom some discussion of of Honor Harrington. I shared three representative notes. First of all, we've been getting fabulous feedback from our listeners who have followed us into this new series also um and so i I, so i shared that and i said okay i'm I'm not gonna pound everyone over the head but one of the one one of the pieces of feedback talked about how someone started to read it then put it down then i mentioned it again the week after and he picked it up again he read it for a while then he's put it down again then i mentioned it again the next week and he finally like he said two pages after i started the third time he says i it finally caught me and I have not been able to put it down. So, and a number of people have talked about Audible saying that it gets better or that maybe the readers of the later books are better or something. But, you know, so I've been hoping that, uh, that, uh, I'll give Audible another chance. chance. Yeah, I'll give Audible another chance. But, you know, and I only got the, I didn't even get through the preface. I thought the reader was so poor, but, um, maybe she does get better. So I'll, I'll give it another chance. You know, that's me. If it's an audio book, it's much more likely that I'm going to get to read it because I have more time to read uh, audio than I do, uh, but I was on vacation, as you know, last week. By the way, thanks yes. to Tom Merritt for filling in. So that's when I I got a lot of reading done on the beach, which was nice. So um, let's before we get into the meat of the matter, shall we? Uh, I would like to take a little break and acknowledge a brand new, or I guess returning sponsor to the show. We're very glad to have Ford back. In fact, uh, we'll, with details to come, but we're going to have some Ford barbecues. Uh, during Twit, we're going to have a barbecue, uh, and we're going to invite people to come. We'll we'll let you know how you can participate in that, uh, and we'll show off some new Ford vehicles out front, uh, or maybe in the alley. I don't know. We're going to have to get permits from the police to do this, but it's going to be a lot of fun. We love Ford. You know, I drive a Ford Mustang and I have for a couple of years now, and just adore it. And and the thing that sold me on it, of course, was the Ford Sync. You know, now that Siri's getting all this attention on the iPhone, let me tell you, I've been talking to my car in much the same way for a couple of years now. I would say, you know, set the temperature in the car. Uh, give me the traffic conditions. What's the weather going to be like? Where's the nearest gas station? All of that, by without taking my hands off the wheel, my eyes off the road, I just press a button on the steering wheel and talk to my car. So I've been, I've been doing a Siri-like thing for a long time. But, you know, Ford really, think, I think, uh, is thinking of the modern automobile as a consumer electronics device in many ways. You know, not only putting the sink in, which is truly awesome, and if you... Haven't driven a car with a sync or my Ford Touch? Uh, go to your Ford dealer and give it a shot. I think you might like it. But also now the new cars. You, if you have a USB, uh, you know, three G dongle, one of those things that, that you know the phone company sells. 
You plug it in. They have a USB port. The car is wired for Wi-Fi. So it turns a car into a Wi-Fi access spot for up to five users, which is truly amazing. I mean, they got, they've got the, uh, the stuff all built in there. Uh, so it really is pretty amazing uh, what they're up to. By the way, yes, Steve, WPA2 security built in. So it's a, it's a modern, secure Wi-Fi access spot. I would expect nothing less from, uh, from Ford. Take a look. If you go to Ford.com slash technology, I love it that they've done this. There's a page for us geeks about all of the technology in Ford vehicles, from their electric vehicles to the Wi-Fi to the sync with my Ford Touch. Um, you know, just little things. I was just I was talking about this uh, the other day. Uh, I was driving the Ford Edge with my Ford Touch uh, for during vacation, and I was able to set the cruise control, not but turn it on, but also set the set the exact speed by you know like sixty five. And it's just little things like that that just I just love. It's very elegant. You want to take a look at a Ford? Go to your Ford dealer, or visit this page Ford.com/technology and stay tuned for details about our Ford barbecues. Coming up, we're going to have a lot of fun with those. Ford.com slash technology. We're so glad that they, uh, they're back because I'm a Ford fan. I'm a Ford, we're a Ford family. All right, Steve, uh, let's launch into the uh, security and attacks portion of the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, speaking of attacks, we pretty much covered all of the major player updates last week. We had our second Tuesday of the month. Uh, standard Microsoft updates, um, Apple, of course, across the board, updated iTunes and Mac OS, oh, uh, OS 10. Huge and updates. So forth. Mostly not security. Well, some of them security, but the Apple stuff was also about iCloud and iOS 5. I mean, it was, right. And there it was, was also half some Safari updates that right. was security and also some right. performance, actually, of, of um, right. Safari's JavaScript processing. They were claiming they'd made it faster. Huh. Um, also, I mentioned you and I talked the week before that our our topic was Beast B E A S T the browser exploit against SSL and TLS. Uh, we shared the the fun uh, chronology of the development of that hack, and our listeners will remember that at the time I described that the developers of this um, looked into the Java source for a vulnerability to fit their particular needs and found one. And Mozilla blogged shortly afterwards that they were considering blocking Java in order to protect people from hmm. the beast. Um, what ended up happening was that, that Oracle, who now you know, bought Sun and, and controls Java, immediately... I mean, relatively quickly, updated Java to what is now version 6, update 29. So I wanted to let our listeners know, oh, and, and Mozilla did update their blog saying, okay, now that there's a new Java, we're not going to do anything as draconian as just shutting down all Java in Firefox. Um, I was at 1.6.0 update 26, which is version 6, update 26. So um, I went up to 29. You can just go, um, if you Google verify Java version, then the first link you get is to an, the sort of the official page that, that Oracle is maintaining at java.com that will allow you to click a button. It'll have Java 
test itself and tell you what version you're using. You can also open a DOS box, it turns out. And if you have a DOS prompt, you can, you can just type Java space hyphen version, and it'll dump out, in my case, it dumped out three lines of, of various version information. So plenty of detail there. But you do want to be up at version 6 update 29. Technically, there is a version 7 now, which is, as it sounds like, a major update adding a bunch more features and so forth, but it has not yet been widely deployed. It's available for developers and offers some additional performance enhancements, some security enhancements, um, and even support for using the Java virtual machine with non-Java languages so that you'd have languages other than Java that would compile to the Java bytecode for for speedy interpretation by the Java virtual machine. So new stuff is coming. Um, and that's really all I had in the way of updates. I did just, this is completely random, but I thought I would share it with my listeners because at some point I'm going to mention this and people are going to go, what? Um, I'm back to version 3.6.23 of Firefox. H- having come all the way back from 6 because I just got fed up with its memory problems. Firefox, I don't know what happened, but at the it's at horrible. four, it's horrible. At, yes, at four they broke it. And when I would unblank my machine in the morning, Firefox would have grown to one point six gigabytes. It was basically taking over my machine because I had left it up with some tabs open, which is ridiculous. And so if it, it, what I, and as I was experimenting with it, if I would open a new tab and then close it, that would sort of wake Firefox up somehow. And then I would watch its memory consumption drop back down, not back where it should be. It would go back to about half of that, about 800 meg. And then if I closed it and then reopened it so that it would just reload freshly those tabs that I had left open – it would be back at maybe 250 meg. So something was really wrong. And I just objected to it in principle. So then I, so I went back to five. I tried four. I went to the very first four that was still doing it. So I thought, okay, forget this. And I went back to 3.6.23, <laughs> which is the, the last one prior to four, which they are still maintaining and no problem at all. It's back. I mean, it's it's a beautifully behaving every morning. Nothing has grown. It's taking up much less memory. And it's like, okay, this you know, I'm I'm on the verge of abandoning it, abandoning it altogether in favor of Chrome. But I like the tabs on the side. Chrome on Windows gives me tabs on the side, as we've talked about. But they're much taller tabs, so they they just take up more space. But and I like I ha, like obviously I like having no script and a number of the other plugins that are available for Firefox just because it's been around and is so much more more mature than Chrome is. But boy, I don't know. They've got to get their act together, or you know they're losing me. It's it's a it's annoying. So mm. I just thought I would share that. If any listeners have been seeing the same things, for what it's worth, three point six point two three works just beautifully. Yeah. So security news. Um, the EFF, our friends at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, were as concerned as we were about Amazon's announcement with their 
their Kindle tablet and their so-called silk technology, which, you know, in our careful parsing of their privacy agreement and technology statements, you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, Leo, you and I looked at this very closely, trying to figure out what it was they were doing. That is, were they going to be proxying SSL? We had talked before about how Opera behaved and how the the Silk browser or or the browser in the the forthcoming Kindle tablet might have a certificate for Amazon's cloud, which would allow it to to filter and enhance the performance of SSL encryption. And so the EFF was as concerned as we were, got a hold of the lead developer for the whole Silk project. And um, I wanted to give a tip of my hat to Fabrice Roux in Marseille, France, uh, who tweeted me uh, the link that put me onto this. So I was really glad to have the information. So here's the deal. Absolutely never, not under any situation, circumstances, or configuration, will Amazon interpose themselves with SSL connections, period. They're oh, never doing it. Yay. Yes. That's the right thing to do. Fantastic. Of course, that breaks all caching on, yes. well, on it secure mean, it, sites. Yes. It, yes. It means that the cloud services are not available for SSL. But That's fine. I, 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 I really agree with you, Leo. I think that is absolutely the right thing to do. Ironically, it's, just, it's Amazon's own site that won't be sped up, but... Right. <laughs> Maybe they can right. actually, you know what, that site they could speed up because they legitimately have the certificates for that. Yeah, there was there was a group that I talked to a couple months ago. They have a project called Cocoon. And I, I spent some time on the phone with their techie guy. And they are proxying SSL. And I just said, you know, I, that's just not okay. I just... I mean, they're 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 doing it so they can filter and interpose and add AV and and protect you from protect you from downloading stuff. And I said, I'm sorry, but you know, that's that's a problem. That's something that I just cannot get comfortable with. The idea that I mean, and and well, the the idea that a that a some service like that, which is free, is is seeing my username and login when I'm logging into things and and also seeing secure session cookies. I mean, it just, as we all know, everyone who follows this podcast knows it is too difficult to be perfect. And perfection is what's required in, a, in order to have perfect security. And the bad guys are just looking for the weakest link in the chain, just one little notch one little niche somewhere where a mistake was made and that's all they need. So it is just, it is better for no, for no third party to try to get itself involved in our secure connection. So they never have that responsibility. I'm sure that's what Amazon was feeling was we don't want that responsibility. So, so first of all, SSL is never intercepted by Amazon with their silk cloud services. Secondly, all silk optimization can be completely disabled on the very first browser options page. 
So it's right in your face. I haven't seen it myself because I don't yet have the the Kindle. But but the EFF in talking to the developer, he made it very clear that that for people who were concerned about the privacy, the potential privacy tracking logging implications of having Amazon interposing itself sort of as an active or overactive caching service. I mean, they are they are deliberately looking at the page you are requesting and going and fetching all of the the third party and and successive content in the page even before your browser gets it and then turns around and asks for it. So they're they're actively participating for the sake of speeding things up. That does make people nervous, as I think it should. So the good news is if you don't want that, you can turn it off. And then your your individual Kindle's browsing will go direct to the the third party well, first party and third party sites and Silk and Amazon are not in the way at all. So from your your connection, your system will um, resolve DNS and make direct connections not running through Amazon. Now on the good side of Silk, something that I had guessed and was hoping for was confirmed, which is when you are using Silk, which is the default is by default enabled using the Kindle tablet. They do create a single persistent connection and it is always encrypted. So, so what that means is users in Wi-Fi hotspots end up with complete protection. When you're using SSL, you get the encryption of SSL and Amazon is not a third-party proxy in your connection. There's no man in the middle. When you're not using SSL, that is the rest of the time, as you're poking around the net, just doing other things on non-encrypted web pages, you and you have Silk enabled, and you've left it enabled, then Amazon establishes a single connection. They're using a protocol that we'll talk about soon called SPDY, which is short for speedy. And that's that's some of the work that, that Google's been doing with the Chromium project to make the web faster. So, th- so this is a, it's a protocol different from and faster than HTTP, which of course, as we know, the hypertext transfer protocol that everyone has always been using for web surfing. So, so the Chromium project, the Chromium guys in as we've talked about this in a couple different contexts in the past, in really looking carefully at where time goes, how delays creep into web page loading. And, and you know, and, and for example, we talked before about how one of the things they've experimented with is coming up with ways to improve the speed of SSL, to to cut down on the, the number of round trips that data have to make over connections. That's one of the one of their make the web faster aspects. Well, this SPDY protocol that they're they're that they have developed and have a, have a preliminary spec for is what Amazon is using. So it is an encrypted end to end protocol, which allows Amazon to stream the content of pages over the single connection. And what it means is that 
even in open Wi-Fi hotspots, when you're using the tablet with Silk enabled, nothing that you do can be eavesdropped on, whether you're using SSL connections or not. Um, but the EFF being the EFF, still concerned about logging because they recognize that with Silk on for non-SSL connections, we're running through Amazon and Amazon is busy, sure, on our behalf, but their question was, what's being logged? So I want to read exactly from what the EFF wrote so that I, so that I don't misquote this. They said, for the persistent SPDY connection between the device and Amazon's servers, Amazon assures us that the only pieces of information from the device that are regularly logged are the URL of the resource being requested, a timestamp, and a token identifying the session. This data is logged for 30 days. The token has no identifying information about a device or user and is only used to identify a particular session. So that's a so-called, you know, a fully opaque nonce or a, an, an opaque cookie, essentially, but not a cookie in the normal sense. It's their own, their own session token. Then they say, indeed, Amazon's director of Silk Development, John Jenkins, said, quote, individual identifiers like IP and MAC addresses are not associated with browsing history and are only collected for technical troubleshooting. We repeatedly, we the, the EFF, repeatedly asked if there was any way to associate the logged information with a particular user or Amazon account, and we were told there was not, and that Amazon is not in a position to track users. No information about the ongoing requests from the AWS servers is logged. With respect to caching, Amazon follows caching headers, which offer some protection against caching sensitive information sent over HTTP. Meaning that, for example, there are headers that say, you know, no caching, please. And so Amazon will honor such headers, which is the, which is the right behavior. It's the only proper behavior for any sort of a cache on the web. It's very important for anything that's caching to obey Obey the headers which talk about expiration and non-caching and so forth because otherwise all kinds of things break. You know, once upon a time years ago, Leo, you may remember, I'm sure you do, that there were strange sort of caching things where you'd you'd get obsolete copies of pages and you'd have to do like you know control shift refresh or yeah, something, yeah, yeah. and then you or you'd bring it up even with a different browser. And now that browser would show a different instance because of, you know, like local caching that wasn't working right. right. Well, those are just sort of people not implementing, you know, older protocol or original protocols properly, which they have since fixed. However, the EFF page says Amazon does not operate as an anonymizing proxy. So we should not assume it does. For example, even the IP addresses of the user are not shielded by Amazon. We might think that they were because if we're making requests which goes to Amazon and Amazon is in turn making those requests on our behalf, which is what a caching proxy does, you might say, oh, that means that sites that, you, that we're 
technically visiting or actually being visited for us by Amazon. So those sites would be seeing Amazon's IP, except that proper behavior for such a web forwarder or web proxy is to add their own header. There's a header called X hyphen forwarded hyphen four. So it's a forwarded four header. And Amazon is putting that into their queries on our behalf. And that means that our IP address is is forwarded by Amazon to the destination that can help prevent the breakage of things which are IP based, which is why this is done. So so Amazon is in providing no anonymizing uh, um, services. And again, it's like, you know, they're just they're they're playing by the rules as a standard web proxy, not wanting to get, you know, in our, um, you know, in the anonymizing business. So so I guess users should accept the idea that there will be a privacy versus performance trade-off. If you if, if all, any of that upsets you, you can easily turn off Silk and see how it feels. I mean, I, it's one, I, I can't wait to play with this and see, you know, what kind of benefit this much-touted technology with Amazon in the cloud actually provides us. Um, and and whether it just feels like um, it's worth the you know the the modest what I think is probably a modest uh, loss of privacy and probably not a big deal. Um, Google also in the news uh, security wise has been has taken another step towards SSL. They announced on Tuesday. That's just yesterday, uh, for when we're recording this on on Wednesday, that they are they are going to be defaulting to SSL connections for users. Woo-hoo. And I wanted to make I, yes, although it um, seems more like a publicity. Well, I'll let you tell me whether it is or not. I, come on, really? Do we need to have secure searches? Well, um, the concern has been that without secure search, anybody who's looking at your connections is able to see what you're searching for and the results you get. And so it's like, yeah, I I agree, Leo. It doesn't seem to me like a big deal. To me, what I like about this, the reason I mention it is it's just, it's movement in the right direction. And I also noted that both on Amazon and at the EFF and in looking at all this Google news, there's never a mention of TLS. Well, and so I wanted to formally say to our listeners that I'm also going to stop constantly saying SSL slash TLS, and you know, because it's just too obnoxious. Nobody else seems to be talking about TLS. We know that technically SSL's um, been obsoleted in favor of an upgrade, which is you know TLS protocol, but. Everyone calls it SSL. It's just simpler. So I'm going to be saying SSL from now on. Um, and it's, to, it's from now on, our listeners will know that, yes, that's technically that the transport layer security instead of secure socket layer um, acronym. But SSL is what everyone is calling it. I just think it's easier and, and less confusing. So um, what Google is doing is for law for their logged on users. That is, if you're if you 
have logged into Google's services so that when you go to Google, it knows who you are because your browser is returning a persistent cookie, a session cookie identifying you. What Google will do is when you if you just enter Google.com into the URL or www.google.com, then your browser will be redirected to a secure instance of that. So security will come up so that so that the searching that you then do and the query you make will be over an SSL connection. Well, I tried that this morning and it didn't work for me. Oh. So they may still be in the process of rolling it out. Um, I, I don't understand why I did That's not unusual. I, yeah, I did, I did log in and it's like, okay, now it knows who I am and I tried it and it didn't work. Now, this has caused some concern for educational institutions because they're a perfect example of, of an organization that has an arguable need to, to block queries that they feel are inappropriate from their students and to filter the results for inappropriate content. And searching Google over SSL prevents them from doing that. It, it, or at least it makes it much more difficult. So being sensitive to that, and this is, of course, an issue that Google understands and has dealt with, They Google on their pages, which describe this move that they're making, they provide a workaround for such educational institutions. This has to be rather large because it requires that, that such an organization be running their own DNS. So this is probably university scale, mm. I would think, more than just elementary school scale. Um, and what they tell such people who want to defeat this automatic, or the, and I would say this forthcoming automatic switch to secure search is to, to put in a what's called a CNAME record for Google.com, pointing it to no SSL search dot google.com so what that what what will happen is when your browser asks for uh when when, when you put google.com in your and i guess also www.google.com your your system will look for the the ip address look up the ip address of google.com instead it will be told oh that's actually a nickname for, sort of a short name for, no SSLsearch.google.com. So then your, your system will ask for, oh, then give me the IP address of no SSLsearch.google.com, and that will return a special IP address. Um, to check all that out, I, I checked what IPs come back for Google.com, and I get a list of six IPs, 74.1. 25.73 dot and then 99 103 104 105 106 and 147 so those five are returned and normally that's you know those will be rotating so in order to do load balancing so different users will get a list which is in a different order and typically your browser takes the, the first one in the list and if there's a problem with that it takes a second one and so forth so that sort of spreads queries being made by users out over all those servers. But if you look up the IP address of no SSL search.google.com, you get just one. 
which is 74.125.127.114. So it's in a different C-class network off by itself, um, obviously expecting to have lower traffic because there's only one and not six IP addresses. And queries made to that IP don't get bounced around. They're, that is, don't, don't get redirected into a secure mode over SSL. They're just left alone. So that provides a means for, for anyone who doesn't want searching by default to be protected inside of an SSL secure tunnel to avoid that. So anyway, mostly in answer to your question, Leo, I just think it it's just represents the direction we want to be going in. It's, you know, we'd like to have SSL on all the Everywhere. time pervasively for yeah. everything. Yeah. And and this is like okay, you know, and Google being very careful, they're sort of just moving us forward. It's not non-logged on users, for example. It's only logged on users. So they're they're trying not to break anything as they sort of cautiously move us forward. It's more of a oh, statement then, than anything else. It's putting a flag. In the, it's more of a statement than anything else. I think it's putting a flag in the ground, yeah. saying others should do this too. Facebook is who needs to do it, and they yes. kind of have. Yes, although they're, they're still, you know, they're, they're, they also sort of incrementally moved forward. We talked right. about how if, if, you, if you ran across an app which could not run over SSL, then you would be forced to drop back to, to non-SSL. And then, and then we discovered it, un, it reset the setting yeah. that of, of you asking for SSL. So like, oh, I think they fixed cool. that a little bit, or at least they notify you, because yep. I've noticed lately that it's, uh, that it's turning yep. itself back on. So there are, I yep. think it's good. They're paying attention. Okay, so here's one where, where you just kind of have to roll your eyes and say, okay, are you really kidding me? <laughs> um, and I, a little tip of the hat to Jimmy LeMaster in Fort Wade, Indiana, uh, who tweeted this to me, and I got a kick out of it. He picked up a, a story about security researchers at Georgia Tech who have managed to achieve 80% accuracy on word detection rates oh boy. for words typed into a keyboard when an iPhone was resting next to it <laughs> on the desk. Some special app they wrote? Well, it turns out that the 3GS iPhone, the, the earlier pre-4 iPhone, only had accelerometers. And it didn't provide them with quite enough information. Basically, it's picking up the vibration of the user typing keys on the keyboard. But as of the iPhone 4, which added the gyro, that's all they need. And so with an iPhone 4 or later sitting on your desk next to your keyboard, they're able with 80% accuracy to determine what you're typing. What they do is wow. they break each. For, for, so every key you press is going to transmit a little bit of vibration via the desktop to the phone. And, and what they do is they, they take each pair of of letters at a time so for example in the example they gave in this wired uh article take the word canoe c-a-n-o-e they take c-a then a-n then n-o then o-e 
And for each pair, they determine whether it's on the left-hand side or the right-hand side and whether it's far or near. So, so this C-A-A-N-N-N, I'm sorry, C-A-A-N-N-O-O-E translates to, from a, from, from a vibrational standpoint, they turn that into left-left-near, left-right-far, right-right-far, and right-left-far. Then they use that to reference a dictionary where they have completely translated all the letters of the dictionary <laughs> into these codes based on where the where the letters are on the keyboard. And so they search the dictionary with these codes and 80% of the time they can figure out what word was typed. Wow. So That's impressive. <laughs> This is, this is you know, we've talked about side channel attacks often where, for example, crypto algorithms are themselves secure, but weird things they do like the amount of power they pull depending upon the actual data that they're processing or the amount of time they take to respond where it's like it's the algorithm itself is doing everything right, but something completely off axis is is you know can be observed to to see into what's going on. So you know here's somebody typing on a keyboard, and just the the vibration patterns picked up by their phone laying next to them uh, is is able to to give away what they're doing. And they said that microphones, which are able to sample at a much higher sample rate, typically I guess 44 kilohertz, give them much better access to to What's happening? And there have, of course, been plenty of articles about, about how listening to someone typing can reveal often what they're typing. And they said that by comparison, the sample rate from the, the phone's inertial and gyro positioning systems has a much lower resolution. It's about 100 samples per second is all they can get. But they said microphones are better secured. That is, apps will ask for permission before allowing a microphone to be used, whereas accelerometers, not so much. Because you think, ah, oh, what can yeah. accelerometer what could it you do? Know, give right. away? Right. You know, how could it spy on me? Well, turns out it can. <laughs> hmm. And I did want to also mention for people who are Android users and Firefox users on Android that NoScript, our favorite scripting control tool, for Firefox on other platforms is now available for the Android platform. Really? Oh, that's neat. Yes. That's really great. Yes. There are a few features that don't make sense over on the Android platform, but all of those that do have been moved over. So anyone who's using Firefox on Android, um, as I may be at some point, if, uh, if, if that's available to me as an option through Amazon with my forthcoming Kindle Fire, um, oh, I guess you I'll will be, wanna, won't you? Yeah, I want to do that. Yeah. And then, just a, just closing this, um, I wanted to give everybody a quick update on my off the grid project. Many people have said, "Hey, Steve, whatever happened to that?" Well, I'm I'm working on it. If you do go to the printing page of of the off the grid pages, which are still not linked to the main menu because I haven't gone official yet, you'll see lots of changes. They the ultra high entropy 
program, a pseudo random number generator that I created and talked about is all integrated now in and working. Uh, a ton of entropy is coming from GRC to initialize it and entropy from all other sources is being mixed in. Uh, there is a there is now a visible high entropy key which you can use. And if you always use the same one, you always get the same grid. So those things are done. I just now need to finish up the printing aspect. I want to allow people to choose fonts, set the sizes, turn off the border if they don't want the actual, don't, don't want to use the border, uh, change the, the character padding, other things. So just user interface th stuff is where I am. So I just want to let people know it's not dead by any means. It's, it's where I am spending my time. Um, and then I promised a, a strange but uh, happy uh, short spinwright story from Sam Cannon, who on October 5th, a couple weeks ago, sent to me. He said, my wife lost her Android phone SD data, and I simply plugged it into my laptop. Spinrite saw it. Wow. I ran, I ran Spinrite 6.0, and it was all back. He said another unexpected spinwright miracle when the est when the estimate for professional recovery was greater than eight hundred dollars. Wow. Good investment for a retired Unix guy. Happy wife, happy life. Thanks. <laughs> that's true as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow, what so a thanks great, for sharing I that. So that's interesting. I didn't know that you could work on flash memory. It works on everything, Leo. It's just, I mean, it does things I frankly am surprised by. Shocked. But I don't complain. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, we're going to take a break, come back. We're going to talk about TCP, part two of our TCP discussion, in particular, how you attack it or yes. common TCP attacks. Before we do, though, let's talk about how you fix your clients' computers. Are you in the business of doing that kind of thing? Perhaps you are, in which case, I want you to know about Go to Assist Express. Uh, actually, all of us, anybody who listens to this show probably fixes computers, if not for a living, at least as a sideline for family and friends. Go to Assist is the solution you want and your clients want. You all want to get things done fast. You want to get it fixed right the first time. You want to be able to diagnose the, the problem and resolve the problem without having to make a phone call without having to go to the client's computer, even if it's just down the hall, go to Assist Express, lets you access that computer, get right in there and fix it. I think anybody who does remote, uh, does uh, IT support knows about remote access. This is the one you want to use for a variety of reasons. Cross-platform Mac and PC, completely secure, 128-bit SSL at all times, 24-7 support for you which is always great, but no need to support your clients with this because it's so easy. You just send them a link. They click the link. You tell them ahead of time. It's going to ask you, do you want to allow the uh, installer? And you say yes, and boom, you're, you're in. That's it. Couldn't be simpler. You don't have to worry about it. updates. It updates every time automatically. It's just fantastic. has some features you're going to like. Features that some of the freebies do not offer. The ability to do eight sessions at once, unattended sessions. The assay that tells you what software is running, what, uh, what um, operating system, what security software, things like that. It really is the way to get the job done. Now, you could try it free for 30 days, and that's my recommendation. You know, don't take my word for it. That's one of the reasons we arrange for these free trials. Just visit the webpage. Go to assist.com slash security now. Go to assist.com slash security now and 
you'll be using the go to assist before you know it. 30 days absolutely free. They have day passes if you do this on the occasion, uh, occasional basis. And, of course, you can do it month to month. It's very affordable, very easy, very effective. And you know what? It's fast, and I think that's important, too. Go to assist.com slash security now. And we thank them for helping us out doing this show. All our sponsors make it possible, and we, we wouldn't be here without them. Uh, all right. I'm ready to begin, Steve. And my, I'll put on my beanie. The lecture, <laughs> is, about, propeller, yes, my the lecture is about to start. Okay, so we last talked about TCP in the context of how connections are established and the use of sequence numbers, which which maintain this and, and establish this no, the notion of a a virtual connection, so that. The point of sending this this so-called SYN or synchronize packet is for that the, the sender of the SYN to declare the starting 32-bit numbering of its packets. And the reason that we don't always start at zero, yeah, well, actually, we'll, as we'll learn in a second, there's a, there's a security and attack-oriented reason also. But the main reason is that a... A connection is is identified by the by the source IP and source port, the destination IP and destination port. Those four items uniquely establish the identity of a of a point to point connection between two different machines on the internet. That is a TCP connection, and and if we were, for example, to number packets always at the beginning of a connection starting from zero, there would be the possibility that we would create a connection, send some data, drop the connection, create a new connection, start numbering it also from zero, but and then it's like, for example, send some data. But just due to the vagaries of the way the internet functions, it might be that that packets from our prior connection were mistaken for packets from our new connection because they had overlapping or similar numbering. So you can see that that there's there's a, a need, and since we've got 32 bits of 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 packet sequence space, we're able to to sort of jump forward and make sure that when we start a new connection, we say, okay, we're going to be numbering it from here which is unique numbering for this endpoint so that if any packets came in, then we would ignore them. What that also implies is that there's some, there's some window during which we would believe incoming packets, packets sequence numbers, meaning if they're, if they're like lower sequence numbers than when we began, that we rule them out. But also if they were like much higher than is reasonable to assume could be valid, we would just discard them also. Well, that's important because it it gave us some protection for the first kind of attack on TCP. And, and what we're going to be talking about here are attacks which are sort of inevitable 
due to the protocol. They're not they're not vulnerabilities created by mistakes anyone made. They're just the the the, the demonstration of what clever hackers can do when they look at a protocol and think, okay, how can we get up to some mischief? One of the important links between routers that we've, and we've talked about routers in this How the Internet Works series, is them sharing their their routing tables with each, with each other. So a, a router in a given location has networks that its interfaces are connected to. And so it also has an interface connected to another router. And it wants to advertise to that router the networks that it services. That way, the, the other router, when it receives a packet which is intended for networks that that, that first router has access to, it'll go, oh, I know which of my interfaces to send this to in order to forward it on its way. So this is called, they use a protocol called BGP, BGP, Border Gateway Protocol, which uses TCP connections for security. That is, as we've discussed, there is a, there is a, an automatic spoof prevention in TCP as opposed to, for example, UDP or ICMP protocols because of this three-way handshake. When, when, when TCP um, sends its, its SYN packet over to the other endpoint that it wants to connect to, that endpoint needs to acknowledge that by, by returning the packet. No, no hacker is able to know what sequence number a, 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 a given SYN packet that's establishing a connection will use. So that gives, that, that gives their dialogue some, some protection against, against TCP IP spoofing. So, so BGP was always assumed to be safe between, for its communications among routers, except that, as we know, attackers are very clever. And what some routers, the Unix is in some routers and in some, some regular old-school Unix systems, what we're not doing a good job with with this initial sequence number randomization. So bad guys figured out a way of actually taking over, uh, splicing into an existing TCP connection by, by sending some connection requests to a router. They would get back some, and by, by that I mean they would send SYN packets, S-Y-N, synchronized packets to the router they would get back the router's answering SYNAC packet, which contained its SYN, that is, contained its, its direction synchronized number. So that allowed them to figure out where the router's own internal stack was at that point in time. And by, by 
doing some guessing and being clever, they were able to surmise when routers were talking to each other to, to probe a router to have it divulge the current state of its internal sequence counter, which, for example, might always move up by, by 64K. There were some simple algorithms originally used where, because, again, this the developers said, well, you know, sequence numbers are to protect packets from being, from, from being confused with older ones. So, you know, here's what we'll do. And they did something that solved that need but wasn't attack-proof. And so hackers were able to, to, to notice the pattern of the way initial sequence numbers were being allocated by a router and then, and then guess what the sequence numbers would be in existing dialogues and essentially splice themselves into an existing TCP connection using BGP, this border gateway protocol, poison the routing tables of routers and and end up being able to cause routers to divert traffic to faraway places and we've 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 heard that this was being done before i've never gotten into the details of of how it was often being done because we weren't at that level of detail now we can understand how that's possible so you have you have tcp connections between routers which are assumed to be secure but they're not because if this initial sequence number can be determined, like where if the router is not really using cryptographically secure determination of sequence numbers, then and, and actually it was using a very simple approach, bad guys were able to, to inject packets into the other router simulating spoofing the router whose sequence numbers they've been able to probe and get that router to accept bogus routing table information, which immediately the router would adopt and suddenly all traffic would go off somewhere else. I mean, maybe across the planet somewhere. So when, when, when it was found out that hackers had figured out how to do this, of course, there was a, a big kerfuffle and people updated their, their routers operating systems in order to prevent this from happening. And we stopped having that kind of problem. But that was one of the, the earliest protocol level attacks on TCP. Now, the more famous attacks. Say what? I said nothing. Oh, that was that was actually an echo coming back to Hello. me. Hello. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. Continue on, my um, friend. The more famous attacks, of course, are denial of service attacks, which have been uh, plaguing the the internet and the industry for a long time. Um, and there were several types of denial of service attacks, which are a little more clever and which systems turned out to be more vulnerable to than most people appreciated. We talked about how a TCP connection is established. The, the, the user, for example, of a browser wants to connect to a server. So we, the user, send a remote server a SYN packet to, to declare our interest in connecting to it. The server 
upon receiving a SIN packet, allocates a chunk of storage to represent that connection, meaning that it fully believes we're good guys. We want to connect to it. So we're declaring, for example, in that SIN packet, this is our initial sequence number. This is the port we're connecting from and from this IP. You know, and remember, these are the things which make our traffic to that server unique from all the other people in the world that have connections to it. So it needs to allocate memory to start some record keeping, to to record the sequence number from that remote IP and that remote port, which is coming into it. And it then generates its own sequence number to send back in, in its SYNAC acknowledgement, which also declares its sequence number. So it needs to record what sequence number it's starting with because it's th- th- those are the numbers it's going to be numbering its bytes back to us with. So then if all goes well, we receive its SYNAC and respond with a final ACK acknowledging the receipt of the SYN portion of its packet in the so-called three-way handshake. Well, the Internet is a strange place. We've, we've established that. Routers, by, by law, by agreement, have the ability, if they're overloaded, to just drop packets. If their buffers can't handle buffering anymore, if their links are, are, are full because a lot of traffic is coming in on some interfaces and all trying to squeeze out of one, but that one doesn't have enough bandwidth, the router is just able to discard things, which means that all of the systems have to be tolerant of of delays and of lost packets. So consider what this means for a high-profile server on the Internet. A SYN packet comes in, and it has to, first of all, assume it's valid. It has no reason not to. All the connections that are coming in start with SYN packets, so ours just looks like anybody else's. So... It receives it, allocates a chunk of memory, and sends back an answering SYNAC. Well, if we do nothing else, a timer in the server expires because it has to assume that we didn't receive its SYNAC. The we're sitting around patiently waiting for a response to our SYN packet. So that means that there also has to be timers that it's allocated as part of our connection. So there's a block of data and responsibility that goes along with this connection opening process. But it turns out that it is possible in more in the old days than now, more in the original implementation of TCP than, than so much today. But it was once possible for a single user on the Internet to take down a major web server just by sending SYN packets and never responding to the SYN acts. And in fact, since we don't have to respond to the SYN act, we can create a fraudulent source IP. That is, we can pretend that this packet 
is coming from someone else and never even get the return traffic. So we spoof the source IP on the SYN and just send it. The server, again, has no reason not to believe it's as good as the one we sent before. So it allocates a chunk of memory, sends a SYNAC off to where that packet apparently came from, and it waits for the answering acknowledgement. If it doesn't come, it sends another one off. Meanwhile, we keep trickling SYN packets in. We may be sending them as fast as we can, but consider what's happening is every one of those SYN packets, it has to treat as valid. Some of them are. Some of them are real users. It can't tell the difference. So it's allocating chunk of memory after chunk of memory after chunk of memory, one for every single incoming SYN packet until it finally collapses until it finally can it cannot allocate any more memory normally that's not going to be gigabytes of server memory because that that that's it's not the it, down in the kernel there's no provision for allowing the tcp ip stack to take over the memory of the system it's given some reasonable amount of allocation some reasonable elasticity to that allocation and at some point it's it's filled up with these with what looks like connections which for some reason have never made it to the next stage and so it turned out that it was originally extremely simple for someone to bring down a major site it did not require as we've often seen more recently huge zombie fleets with tens of thousands of of unwitting computers hopefully on on broadband, high-speed broadband cable modems, you know, all concentrating their fire onto a single beleaguered server somewhere. It actually was originally possible for a single machine to pull, to take down a major site just by sending it a bunch of, of SYN packets, forcing it to allocate memory, and, and you know, it, it, it couldn't determine which one was valid or not. And once that memory pool filled up, it wasn't able to create any new connections, meaning that valid SYN packets coming in from people who wanted to get to a site, were just, they had to be ignored. So when this attack became understood, what was done? Well, a couple of things were done. First was that firewall vendors jumped in with appliances, which they stuck on the front end. They stuck those these appliances in front of vulnerable servers or server farms, and those appliances took responsibility for this. They would return. They would, for example, have much more memory allocated to them. That's like all they were was was connection pool memory, and they'd been hand optimized to be able to do a better job at this. So so they would respond to with the sin from uh, with, with with a synac and then only if an act came back would this appliance then turn around and open a connection to the server behind it in other words this was a tcp connection proxy which was built to be heavy iron very robust high performance and it would essentially it would take the attack itself and and isolate and insulate 
one or more servers behind it from this incoming sin flood. The other thing it could do was be smarter. As it began to see that that uh, that sin packets were piling up and were not being completed, it could just start freeing memory from the oldest sin packets forward. So it was always giving preferential handling to the newest ones, hoping that they might be valid users even amid a a a sin flood coming in trying to push them off the net. But it wouldn't just fill itself up and collapse. It would say, okay, I'm going to start throwing away the oldest ones because, you know, if they never got the oldest ones that had not been completed. And so when a three-way handshake got completed, it would say, okay, now we got a good connection and it would pass it through. Otherwise, it would wait until it got that, that completion. And in the meantime, discard the oldest ones so that it was still able to receive new ones. So that was one thing that was done. Then a very smart security researcher named Daniel Bernstein realized there was a whole different way possible to create a TCP connection. Um, And someone else you guys know well independently realized the same thing. That is me. Um, I didn't find out about Dan and what he called sin cookies – which existed as an option in Linux until I proudly produced my own system, which I called Genesis, um, which was a a sin flooding protection system. And then everyone said, oh, nice, Steve, but, you know, that's already been done. It's like, oh, okay, well, I mean, I didn't keep me from having the fun of inventing something independently. So, um, and I did mine a little bit different than what Dan did. But consider this, the goal here is to to survive a, a, a TCP sin flooding attack of this sort is to keep from letting any resources be depleted. This is a resource depletion attack because just by doing something at a re- relatively modest rate, we don't have to burn up the wires. We, we just we take advantage of the fact that some connections can take a while to complete, which means that servers have to be patient. If they have to be patient, then we can leverage that patience against them and burn up all of the resources they have for connections within that patience window, which is what this first type of sin flood does. It doesn't saturate the bandwidth at all. It saturates the memory, the, 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 the connection resources. So what Dan first realized is there was a way to establish a TCP connection such that you responded to a SYN packet with a SYN ACK and allocated nothing, which was extremely cool. He used some a cryptographic approach, and I'll say that I did also, to, to encrypt the information about the remote user's IP, source port, and initial sequence number and encrypt that into our responding sequence number in our SYNAC. So that what that meant was we did a little bit of work upon receiving a SYN packet. 
and sent back a very special sin act, which involved some crypto of the incoming fields, which would still be the same in the server's final acknowledgement packet. And what that meant was that we receive the sin, we, res- we respond with a sin act, and we remember nothing. No resources are allocated in res- on our end in response to a, an incoming connection request sin packet. The cool thing then is, if our SYNAC, which contained our essentially our cryptographically encoded sequence number, if that if our SYNAC made it back to a legitimate connection target, which then echoed an ACK, it was the incoming ACK on. When, when we did not have an, a connection established with that remote endpoint, we were able to look then at the remote IP, the remote port, the sequence number, and our sequence number, which was being acknowledged, do the same crypto and verify that essentially this was a cryptographic cookie, which Dan called a SYN cookie, because what it meant was... The only way that this incoming act could be valid is if the person sending it had received our SYNAC, which, which involves some crypto to, to take the IP and, and remote port um, and encrypt that with its sequence number. So what this, what, what this technology did was essentially to solve the problem of resource depletion attacks i implemented it independently uh in the in the you know way what like maybe 10 years ago whenever it was that you had to. was being yeah. attacked all the time it was a defense yes it was a, it was a defensive measure against these kinds of attacks um and uh and now that technology is much more widely available yeah. it is in some cases in fact windows incorporated it i don't remember when oh interesting i don't think it was windows 2k it might have been uh server 2003 they for the sake of compatibility they're not always operating in that mode but if they see their connection queue growing to a certain size then they dynamically decide whoops this looks like we're under attack and so it switches on this this non-resource depleting connection mode um, in order to respond. And Linux has, last time I looked, and it, but it's been a long time since I looked at this stuff, Linux did not have it enabled by default, but you could certainly build a Linux or maybe use options um, at boot time in order to turn sin cookie behavior on and... Um, it didn't break many things. It was it was a highly compatible solution, but that solved the problem of resource depletion attacks. Now, I should mention that it was because of all this that I got in Microsoft's face with Windows XP, because because none of this was possible unless you had something called raw sockets. That is, remember that the whole point of the TCP IP stack, as it's called. This is all networking technology in the kernel. At the application layer, 
Everything is much simpler. No, all of this is being done for you. At the application layer, you say you the application, you know, Opera, Firefox, a browser, email, you know, whatever the application is, just says, please give me a connection to this remote port or, or this remote IP and port. So you ask for that. But all of that packet traffic, all of the SYN, SYNAC, ACK stuff is done under, you know, by the operating system in the networking stack. You cannot produce. There, there's, no, there's no code. There's no API is the, is the technical term, an application programming interface. There's no API for generating a SYN packet. You can't do it. You can, you can send an ICMP packet to, to, to ping or to do a trace route, but you cannot generate a SYN packet unless you have something called raw sockets, which is an API that was originally available in Unix only. It was also available in Windows 2000. And what I, what I saw Microsoft doing as they were going to XP was they were they went from Win 2K to Win XP, basically just changed the UI, you know, gave it a whole candy sugar coating user interface so that it no longer looked like Windows 3.1, which and, and Windows NT, which is what Windows 2K looked like. Um, Windows 2K had a much more advanced networking technology, including finally raw sockets. Microsoft was always being laughed at by Unix people saying, oh, well, it's not really a real operating system because you don't even have raw sockets. So I think in response to that, Microsoft said, ouch, and added raw sockets, which was fine for Windows 2000 because it wasn't a consumer operating system. You know, consumers were still using Windows 95, 98, ME, and it was with XP that Microsoft was going to migrate all of, the, all of that legacy OS over to Windows XP, which they did. That was the source of my concern because I recognized that Windows XP users were going to get themselves infected and that malware running on XP that had access to full raw socket API would be vastly more dangerous for the Internet than, than any malware that had been on any previous consumer platform. I got all kinds of flack for that because many people did not understand my argument, uh, which ended up being shown to be correct. Yep. It took years, um, and it wasn't until Service Pack 2 of, of Windows XP that Microsoft said, oh, that's what Steve meant. And <laughs> they, they removed the raw sockets API from Windows XP, which they – I mean – they never remove things. They're they're you know they're notorious for not breaking stuff. Apple has 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 traditionally been willing to remove things, you know, and upset their developers because they they wanted to keep things simple and and limit their their legacy support. Microsoft has really been reticent to do that historically, but they did pull raw sockets out of XP because they realized, um, you know, they were just too dangerous. But it turns out there was another type of problem which SYN packets created, which was different than resource depletion, and that was routers. A router is designed, as we've talked earlier on in our How the Internet Works series, to accept packets 
and send them on their way. That's what they do. So a typical packet is around 1,500, for, for some reason, 1,536 sticks in my mind. Um, but that's also <laughs> two to the power of it's something be a that power, I've been right? seeing yeah. recently. But anyway, so it's about 1,500 bytes. So the idea is if you've got certain bandwidth on your connections and packets are coming in at 1,500 <clears throat> bytes at that bandwidth, that means that you're going to have packets at a certain rate. Now, applications are typically giving the TCP IP stack a big blob. You know, you, you, you may send a small query to the server, and that maybe fits in a single packet. But it's going to respond with a page, which is going to be, you know, tens, maybe hundreds of K. So the server up at the application level sends this 100K file, probably out of its cache, if other people have asked for that page, down to the TCP IP stack and, say, and, and says, send this off. So the TCP IP stack, wanting to be efficient, chops this up into the largest packets possible. And there is technology, which we've briefly talked about, for figuring out how large a packet I can get from one endpoint to the other, because one of the ICMP plumbing protocol features says that um, I was unable to forward a packet from where I am to the next router because the interface, the technology over the interface can't take a packet the size you've given me. So routers can fragment packets, but you can also tell them, do not fragment, instead send me an error. So it's possible for, for links to establish the maximum packet size, which is worth doing because you get a lot more efficiency. So in what, what I'm trying to say is that in general, the internet works with packets being as large as they can be. Is, because is, that, is that the MTU size when I, when I see an MTU yes, setting? Is that maximum a, transmission, transmission unit. unit? Okay. Yep. That's exactly what that is. And so, so routers are always being de designed to be as inexpensive as possible. And if you've ever looked inside your typical Cisco router, it's, you know, a little old MIPS chip from the <laughs> 1900s. Um, I mean, it's just, there's not much in there, right. uh, which is why Cisco was, you know, doing so well for so long, is they were able to sell something that looks pretty impressive from the outside, but, you know, it's hollow on the inside. It's all industrial and, design, yeah. Yes. And it's it's actually doesn't have to do very much. It just receives this packet. It looks at the first few bytes, and then it sticks it in an outbound buffer, and off it goes. So, what happens with small packets. What happens is the switching rate. At a given amount of total bandwidth coming into the router, routers are rated in terms of the amount, the, the number of packets they can process per second. PPS, packets per second, is one of the specs for routers. And what it turns out is Almost no routers, in fact, I, don't, I, could almost, I, could, I think I could say no routers, are able 
to process the the amount of bandwidth they can handle in small packets. So if packets are 1,500 bytes, and I'm reaching for my calculator, because I used to know all this stuff by heart, but I haven't talked about this for a long time. If packets are 1,500 bytes for regular data-bearing packets, and SIN packets are 60, which is a number I seem to have in my head also, well, that's a huge difference between a data-bearing packet of 1,500 bytes and a SIN packet of 60 bytes. That's a 25 to 1 ratio, which means if, if routers are receiving the smallest possible packet, which is, you know, a, 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 a TCP SIN packet, then given the amount of bandwidth connecting them to the Internet, somebody sending SIN packets back-to-back as fast as possible, is able to is able to present the router with twenty times the rate of packet headers. The headers are what causes the router to do work because it's got to look at the header, read the destination source or the, the the destination IP, and send it on. Also, check its routing table and figure out which interface it goes to and so forth. So there is substantial per packet routing overhead. So just by sending smaller packets somewhere, all the routers between you and the destination, if you send lots of small packets, are doing far more work. And they're just not rated for it. They're they're generally rated for a mixture of packet sizes, and you can see that in the specs too. They'll say, you know, they can handle 20% minimum size packets, 80% typical size packets. And they'll, they'll, they'll explain that, you know, minimum size packets are a lot more work. So one of the, one of the not very well appreciated sort of unforeseen consequences of sin floods is that they were the smallest TCP packets possible, and they were twenty. Well, they were one twenty-fifth the size of the normal payload-carrying packets that routers switched, and they just collapsed the router. The routers just went underwater. Could not. They. They. I mean, in a way that they were ill-equipped. You know, routers can handle dropping packets. By design, if their interfaces, if their interface buffers are over full, but if you just if you just pour in packets at twenty five times the rate they expect, they, the router just collapses. I mean, it, it reboots, it crashes, it freezes up, it does horrible things. And so, what what the what the DOS attackers learned was that they may not even be reaching the actual server. They're trying to attack. If they do have a, 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 a number of bots, and again, not even that many, all concentrating their fire at a single IP, that their their traffic will be aggregating as uh, around the internet as it begins to filter for closer and closer toward the target IP. And at some point, the routers along the way will just collapse under the strain. So the server is sitting around with no traffic 
because the routers serving it have collapsed. And of course, users, valid users who send innocent TCP IP SIN packets or just want to transact regular data, they can't because the routers have been pushed off the internet by the by the packet switching rate, the, the, the number of packets that it's possible to send a router if each packet is very small. And so that ended up being sort of an unforeseen side effect of these denial of service attacks. It was small packets that routers, that, that could be 25 times the, the, the packet, the number of packets per second uh, that DOS attacks were creating. And the, the result was the same as if the server itself had been blown off the internet, but it, the, the attack never even got to the server because it collapsed the internet's infrastructure um, upstream of the server. And uh, that's our episode on attacking TCP. There you go. From a man who has had some experience with this. Direct. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, alas. Um, very interesting stuff and, uh, and uh, very practical if you have, uh, if you have a website. Now you know what's happening. <laughs> yeah, and really no one's fault. I mean, these right. were, th the this is. wasn't because of, of implementation problems. Many people have scrambled around and, you know, there are robust routers now that, are, that talk about their packet processing rate. And then they say they're able to handle, you know, a, 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 the bandwidth of their interfaces at minimum size packets. But that required more cost and more expense. And it wasn't the case in the old days. Yeah. So would the, you, you would use this to attack a, an individual as well, I guess. You could attack their router. Oh, gosh. An individual has none of the higher-end right. hardware. So, right. yeah, you, you, could, you could easily take one of these little blue box routers Knock off the net off. By, by sending a bunch of SINs to it. Right. it. And, in fact, that's what the script kitties were originally doing when they were in IRC chat rooms. Mm -hmm. They would want to blow somebody who had... Right. Um, IRC privileges off of the net so that the essentially that they would you know capture the flag and then they would be running the IRC chat room slapping them yep uh, if you want to know more about this well Steve's got a whole website just full of good stuff at grc.com that's where you'll find spin right his bread and butter the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility heck hard drive you could do s s compact flash too apparently <laughs> F phone memory uh, he also uh, has a lot of freebies there, which you should check out. His perfect paper, passwords, password, haystacks, great information. Lots of things. Uh, GRC.com. He's on Twitter at SGGRC. And uh, we'll all do a feedback episode next week. So you want to email a question. It, the best way to do it is go to the website, GRC.com slash feedback. And there's a form there you can fill out. There's very active forums there too, though. Good place to go uh, to ask questions. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, my friend. We'll be back Wednesday at uh, normal time again, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern at uh, 1800 UTC at twit.tv. And uh, we'll see you there. Security.